Blindfolds all in place? All right, then may we welcome our next contestant, please. Will you come in? Very nice to have you here. Now, uh, panel, because there is an area of identification, we'll refer to this gentleman as Mr. X. Uh, Mr. X, if you'll uh, whisper your secret to me, <coughs> we'll show it at the same time to our audience. Panel will help you uh, with this game. The clue concerns something Mr. X did. We'll start the game with Betsy Palmer. Mr. X, uh, your face would be familiar to all of us on the panel uh, because it's been in the newspaper? I think so. Um, is this something that was done as far as science is concerned, to benefit science? No. Was this something done uh, with sports? Yes. Oh, wait a minute. Could you be possibly... Oh, could you be a very tall man? Could you? Guy, yeah, he could be. You know I know what it is. Wilt the Stilts. Yes. Wilt the Stilts Chamberlain, there it is. Mm. All right, one goes off. Get a hundred points in the game, huh? Yeah. Betsy, what did you say? What did you get a hundred points in a game. Well, a hundred points in one game, well, right. which is the first time it's ever been accomplished. For me, you now this is what this is what thrills me is he has established a new record 100 points in the game the previous record i believe was how many points in the game oh, uh, will 78 78 and who do you think held that record the previous record of 78 will <laughs> still chamberlain yes so he broke his own record and he's approaching another record now which is for the most points scored in any one season how many have you scored so far this season 3,995. Oh. He is five points short, short of 4,000 points. Now, any of you who have played basketball know that even when it's played as a college sport, it's a rough sport. Played professionally, it is a murderous game. Because if they can't block his shots, they give him the elbow in the side, right? That's right. Hoping not to get caught at it. But now, how many games will you play in a, in a season? 80 regular season games, Gary. 80 regular season games, and then you play... Yeah, 15 exhibitions and approximately 15 uh, playoff games. Almost 110, 115 games. 110, 115 games, which averages out sometimes to, to, to like six games a week. You travel in between them and take this brutal punishment, so you know that you, he has to be in magnificent condition. A very modest young man, and we're very proud to have met you, Wilton. Indeed we are. My Thank you very much. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey now, how's it going, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is, of course, Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for swinging on by. Happy to have you. Pull up a chair, have a seat, relax, put put us in your earbuds and uh, and uh, enjoy, will you, uh, our little conversation this week as we go back into the life and times of perhaps one of the, if not the, debatable for sure, 
but certainly undeniable talents in all of basketball history. Wilt Chamberlain, fun guy, intriguing guy, renaissance guy. Uh, we uh, jumped at the chance uh, once we discovered sort of the, uh, the tributaries of life that uh, intersect with our little genre of, uh, of the world, and that is the things of defunctness and no longer with us uh, kinds of things. Uh, and um, and the, the story of Will Chamberlain. Now, I, it is um, no doubt uh, well-known and extremely well-documented uh, about just how tremendous a player Will Chamberlain is. And tremendous is, is hardly the best adjective, right? This is a guy who uh, literally dominated. Uh, yes, part of the NBA, top 50 of all time, but you know, very much in that conversation when you get to the top two or three players of all time. Yeah, you can talk about LeBron James. Yeah, you can talk about Michael Jordan. Yeah, there's a whole you know slew of other uh, guys too and big fellas uh, who uh, could certainly make their, uh, their claim to sort of uh, the best ever. But if you're looking for goats, greatest of all times, uh, you are absolutely uh, must have to consider uh, the great talents and the legendary skills of Wilt Chamberlain for sure. This episode is not devoted to those exploits. That is, they're well documented. And and Lord knows our guest this week, Robert Cherry, uh, could be the place uh, for you. His book, the definitive uh, biography of Wilt Chamberlain, written by our guest Robert Cherry, Wilt Larger Than Life is absolutely the tome that you would uh, want to have in your library to uh, to delve deeper into the fullest extent of the Wilt Chamberlain story. But we, as you know, in this little show, we love to get into the granular, the minutia, the, the oft-forgotten stuff. And Wilt's career beyond basketball, frankly, also inclusive of basketball, uh, it, it definitely had a few stops in our little genre. And we're excited at that prospect to go deeper with uh, that story that uh, sort of less heralded part of Wilt's uh, amazing uh, life uh, with our guest, Robert Cherry. For example, did you know that uh, Wilt Chamberlain, uh, before going to the NBA, uh, after his uh, collegiate career at Kansas, uh, sat out a year back in the day because uh, the, the rules didn't permit a non-graduating senior class member uh, to go to the NBA. He played for the Harlem Globetrotters. Now, he also played for the Harlem Globetrotters uh, while he was also in the NBA in the offseason and stuff. But but Wilts, basically, his his professional career got started in 1958 by playing for Abe Saperstein's Harlem Globetrotters and already showing how uh, a tremendous player he was uh, back in the day before he uh, went into the NBA. Did you know, for example, that when he did go to the NBA, that he went to the team now known as the Golden State, but then known as the Philadelphia Warriors. That qualifies for ours. That was a previously domiciled version of the current current Warriors franchise. And yeah, our previous episodes that uh, danced around the uh, the great Mister Basketball uh, Eddie Gottlieb, uh, for sure, part of that uh, that that story and the relationship between uh, Eddie and Wilt. Matter of fact, Wilt uh, uh, was essentially already promised to the Warriors by way of their uh, their regional draft rules uh, that essentially allowed uh, uh, owners of the teams in the various regions to uh, regionally claim these players. And for uh, for Wilt, it was kind of a fait accompli even before he went to the um, Harlem Globetrotters. He was going to be a Warriors player. And it was, of course, as a Philadelphia Warriors player that Wilt broke that record, that 100-point home game 
in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I think uh, they didn't get the arena that night uh, for that game, but uh, that's where it was done. Uh, and that was the clip that you heard at the beginning here. That was uh, from an episode of the the old game show, I've Got a Secret, uh, from, let's see, March 12th, 1962, when Wilt was the, uh, it didn't last too long, <laughs> the secret uh, guest uh, on the, on the, uh, on that episode. And, um, uh, clearly one of the, uh, uh, memorable moments of all time in professional basketball history. Did you know that, uh, Will Chamberlain was also, uh, after his stint with the LA Lakers, uh, a player slash coach in the ABA with the team known as the San Diego Conquistadors or the Q's as they were uh, lovingly remembered and frankly, from the Jersey perspective, a lot easier to sort of get in there uh, onto the onto the clothing. Uh, that was in 1973. Uh, they signed uh, the Conquistadors. Did uh, Chamberlain to be a player coach for the then princely sum of 600 grand? Uh, I think that's at least three or four million dollars in today's money. Uh, but uh, the Lakers uh, sued to prevent him from actually playing. Uh, so he really was kind of relegated to being just the coach part of that hyphenate. Uh, and Stan Albeck, uh, a legendary coach in his own right, essentially uh, as the assistant to Wilt, frankly, did most of the work, if not depending on the day and the game, uh, all of the work, uh, depending on who you talk to. But uh, that was absolutely also part of Wilt's uh, storyline, too, and lesser known. Uh, there are a couple of basketball cards actually floating around out there. Uh, that I think have Wilt listed as a player coach. Uh, there's even a bunch of uh, programs and stuff that have uh, him uh, mentioned it and uh, touted as both. But uh, lest he, uh, lest you uh, forget or not know, he did not actually suit up. Uh, well, I think he did suit up, I think, for you know publicity photos and stuff uh, as a player for the Qs, but uh, did not uh, actually uh, play for them. He just uh, coached them uh, from the sidelines and, and, and arguably uh, – Maybe not necessarily with 100% of his energies. And we'll get into that part with our conversation with Robert Cherry coming up. But last but not least, uh, uh, attentive listeners to the show will also know that Wilt was a standout volleyball player. Yeah, he played volleyball and loved the sport. He's actually inducted into the uh, Volleyball Hall of Fame. He's the only uh, guy to uh, be not only inducted into that, but also into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, and uh, as you may remember in some of our previous episodes, our episode with Jay Hanseth, for example, uh, our conversation about the uh, uh, the great film, uh, the, the document uh, documentary about the IVA. He was part of the International Volleyball Association. Wilt was he was a player uh, and a coach. He was also uh, a commissioner, uh, and he was also apparently a part owner, uh, part of the ownership group behind all of that stuff. Uh, truly hard to believe, but this was a guy uh, who loved the sport of volleyball and the International Volleyball Association itself, just an absolute hoot uh, of a story. And we uh, encourage you uh, to uh, check out our, our previous episodes uh, on that as well. But that's just all part of the story, the great big tableau of the story, the history, the life of Wilt Chamberlain. And yeah, you know, we sort of hint, we get into the you know, the, the, how many ladies he slept with, uh, part of the mix. And, uh, but this guy was a cultural phenomenon for sure. We get in, keep listening intently. You'll hear a couple of clips along the way in our conversation with Robert in a few minutes. Uh, an entrepreneur, he, uh, helped, uh, uh, he funded, uh, track and field teams. He, uh, 
dabbled in real estate. He was a commercial pitchman and, and, uh, um, presenter for lots of different products, uh, products and services. Uh, he was, uh, very, uh, much in demand in the, uh, the television and movie circuit made lots of guest appearances and stuff. And, uh, I, just, just a fascinating character, but these, uh, these parts of it, uh, is our focus. The stuff that uh, people don't forget or fr- uh, don't remember, or frankly, just don't even rem- know about, uh, his, uh, his life beyond, uh, his, uh, star career as an NBA player in, um, uh, in basketball. And that's the uh, focus of our conversation this week with our guest, Robert Cherry, the definitive author of the definitive biography of Wilt Chamberlain called Wilt Larger Than Life. That's our chat coming up in a few minutes. You will love it. I loved it. And uh, I, wa- I can't wait to uh, delve into the book even further and learn more about this fascinating cat known as Wilt Chamberlain coming up in a moment's time. Uh, let's celebrate this week, shall we, with uh, some great stuff a commemorative of uh, of some of this uh, uh, forgotten and unknown history of Will Chamberlain. And in particular, let's get into the San Diego Conquistador story uh, from uh, the ABA. Let's uh, spin the dial and go to OldSchoolShirts.com, our pal P.F. Wilson uh, in beautiful uh, downtown Cincinnati. Uh, there is a wonderful San Diego Conquistadors shirt uh, with the um, Conquistadors logo uh, there it's all, it's there in all its glory. And it comes in all kinds of different designs. You can get it in a crew neck sweatshirt or a racer back tank. If you're looking for a, a women's uh, version of that or a scoop neck shirt, uh, a unisex t-shirt, they're all there for you. Uh, old school shirts.com. Uh, and the promo code there is good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Uh, once you're done there, hop on over to our pals at streaker sports. Dot com, the purveyors of sports culture. Promo code there is good seats. I think it's two words there. It could be one word or two words. Try them both and see which sticks. That's 15% off all of your purchases there. And uh, there is a great uh, 72 version of the San Diego Conquistadors t-shirt, the wordmark version, where it's the sort of the stylized, uh, uh, scripted San Diego Conquistadors in beautiful yellow uh, color. And it uh, is uh, uses uh, in the... Um, the words, uh, the word mark there, it's the light blue, the white and the uh, sort of uh, uh, burnt red uh, sort of color against a, a yellow T-shirt background. San Diego Conquistadors word mark T-shirt at streakersports.com. Again, promo code good seats there. And last but not least, once you're done buying that shirt, you want to head over to 503 Sports. That's 503 dash sports.com. Don't forget the dash. The king of throwbacks promo code there is seats. For 10% off all of your purchases, that's our pal Dustin Alameda uh, out there in beautiful Portland, Oregon. And uh, among other things, you can find the lovingly crafted San Diego Conquistadors jersey, replica jersey. Uh, It's fantastically done. Uh, You get your name on the back of it if you'd like, put numbers on it if you'd like. And there are two different versions of it. There's the uh, beautiful, smart-looking red version that says San Diego across across the front. Or you can get the white, I'm guessing, home version uh, that literally has just the stylized scripted Q apostrophe S on the front. And those in the know knew that, of course, that the Conquistadors went by the much shorter uh, nickname appellation as the Qs. Uh, Both of those versions are there for you at 503-sports.com. Again, promo promo code, he says, SEATS for 10% of all of your purchases. So what better ways, plural, 
to celebrate the San Diego Conquistadors cup of coffee that uh, Wilt Chamberlain had in the early 1970s uh, by uh, then not uh, visiting those great sites and, uh, you know, giving us a few shekels of referral love when you do so. Thank you to 503 Sports. Thank you to Streaker Sports. And thank you to OldSchoolShirts.com for your sponsorship of the show, especially this week. And now, drum roll, please. Here we go. This is our our, our fascinating journey into the nooks and crannies, the uh, the ones that people frankly don't remember or 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 even know about. Uh, as we get into the uh, the depths of the fascinating life story of Wilt Chamberlain, here's our conversation with Robert Cherry, the, the definitive biographer. Here it is coming up. Please, as always, enjoy. So, okay, so look, you you kind of know the zeitgeist of this um, of this odd genre that we sort of uh, carved out for ourselves in podcast land, and um, and obviously, you know, Will Chamberlain is a world class, internationally known and renowned uh, figure, uh, you know, in basketball, of course, but but uh, on a lot of sort of different levels, and we'll get into some of those things. But before we get into sort of the uh, shall we say the idiosyncrasies or lesser known parts of uh, of Wilt's life. How about a little background on you and how you came to, frankly, uh, put together the definitive, by all accounts, uh, biography of this um, uh, of this admitted legend uh, in in basketball and, and beyond? I was thinking that if IBM, or the Chinese or Japanese fastest computer were fed the information to come up with an excellent or perfect biographer for Will Chamberlain that I would be one of the five finalists, maybe the three finalists, not to say other people couldn't have written an excellent bio of Wilt, but it was the book, it's a cliche to say I, I was born to write. And by that, I mean, A, that I grew up in Philadelphia, a great basketball city. I, I don't know if you or your listeners know how many great college teams and college coaches came from Philadelphia, how many referees in basketball and other sports grew up in the Philadelphia area. Oh, so, we, as, we've gone back to the Philadelphia spas and all that kind of stuff, so there's no no question about that. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in that milieu in the 50s. As Wilt said, uh, basketball was king. Had he grown up in California, he may have played other sports or in upstate New York. So that was number one, where I grew up. Number two, my sister was in Wilt's uh, class at Overbrook, not just his class, but his classroom, Chamberlain Cherry. And they were friends and not the best of friends, but they, Carol, of course, knew Wilt and vice versa. And years later, she might be walking in Center City, Philadelphia, and hear somebody call her name, and it was Wilt. Number three, I fell in love with basketball in my 20s and played basketball at Overbrook High School, long a basketball powerhouse before Wilt put it on the sports map. Throughout my life, wherever I was, including when I was in Peace Corps training in the Virgin Islands, guys who knew sports knew about Philadelphia, knew about Overbrook High School, mostly because of Wilt. But Wilt was not the first great player to graduate from Overbrook High School. Indeed, when I had when the book was published, my Wilt biography in 2004, as of then, Overbrook High School had sent more of its graduates 
to the NBA than any other school in the country except the Witt Clinton High School in New York. So there was, like, growing up in Philly, my sister being at Overbrook, my loving basketball, my playing two years of varsity basketball at Overbrook, six years after Will. I got to love sports writing through Red Smith, the wonderful syndicated columnist. I think younger readers may not know who Red Smith was, but in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, he was one of the most famous, if not the most famous syndicated sports columnists in the country. I love sports writing and read a lot of the great sports writers. So when Wilt died and I listened to uh, an all-news radio station and heard things that I never knew about Wilt, I thought I knew Wilt, uh, big house, famous star, lost too many times to Bill Russell and the Boston Celtics, et cetera, et cetera. And then I heard a story about Wilt befriending the terminally ill daughter, a granddaughter of his teammate Paul Arizon when they played in the with the Philadelphia Warriors in the 50s, and it moved me to tears. And I said to myself, I want to write a book about Wilt. And I got up the next morning and it still seemed like a good idea. And five years later, when the book was published, three years of research and two years writing it, I was happy that I started the project. So all of those reasons and circumstances and experiences led me to write Wilt's biography. All right. So so what did you... And we'll get into some of the, the interesting sort of uh, curves and curvatures of, uh, of the story. But um, yeah, what, what did you think you knew about him... Uh, when you started the project, and, and, and frankly, what what sort of revealed itself to you as you were getting into it and closing out into getting it sort of into a, a published published form? Because I mean, I, as a crack armchair historian, right? I, I, I and put historian absolutely in double quotes, perhaps. Um, I'm just curious, right? So it just becomes an amateur uh, endeavor. But it, when you look at uh, uh, you know the 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 uh, the the overview of, of Wilt's life, I mean, you're hinting at some of it. It's a lot more complex than just being one of the best basketball players of all time. But did you know that going in, per se? No, I did not. And I refer back to the KYW, an all-news radio station in Philadelphia, I'm sorry, WIP, an all-sports radio station, devoted 24 hours following Wilt's death to his life, and people called up with the most interesting anecdotes about Wilt, and that's, uh, to repeat what I said earlier, that's when I said to myself, there's much more to Wilt than the stereotype or the newspaper or magazine articles, Wilt, about a, a rich, arrogant guy with a playboy-like palace home in Los Angeles, and a guy who lost to the Boston Celtics, and I and I said to myself, I want to find out, among other things, why Wilt's teams didn't prevail more over Bill Russell's, Bill Russell's Boston Celtics. So th- that was a revelation. And then as I traveled around the country during the three years of uh, researching the book, I went to Kansas, where Wilt attended college two trips. I went to Los Angeles three times and started from the outside circles of people who knew Wilt to the inside circle, some of the people who knew him better than anybody, including his sister Barbara, probably the person whom he was closest to and knew so much about him, was very protective 
of Wilt's career and life, I learned more and more about this complicated person. And mostly I was impressed with all the nice stories that people who were intimate with him told that he could be demanding, he could be a pain in the ass, but they had wonderful memories. He was one of those characters like Babe Ruth, like Muhammad Ali, or even more than Ali, as great as Muhammad Ali was the most charismatic athlete of, of his time and maybe all times that Wilt generated great anecdotes about his amazing physical stamina, about his love life, about his generosity, just his personality. was He was overwhelming. He dominated every milieu, not just because of his size, but because of his persona and his charisma and his personality. So uh, we're going to obviously highlight on some of the sort of lesser known things here. And, and obviously, you know, the, the, get the book, friends, because uh, the, 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 the story is, is, is rich and, and uh, just the basketball uh, 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 exploits alone, right? There's, there's, there's absolutely, and again, generations of, of fans who may or may not. I, mean, I think a lot of people know the name, right? They probably don't know truly just how significant. I mean, one of the 50 best players in the NBA. And I mean, just, you know, it's, it's on and on and on. Those accolades are, are all there and, and plain, frankly, yeah, the not- yeah. 50, not just, not just name one of the 50 greatest oh, players, please. considered by many people still the greatest of all time, though Michael Jordan, the argument is that he's the greatest people can make. And now with LeBron, I mean, well, was certainly one of the five greatest NBA players. And 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 I claim, that, and many other people, the greatest big man who ever played the game, even though the game has changed with a three-point shot, and we could get into that in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I uh, let uh, let's just pick on one of the sort of the uh, the sort of lesser known things. Although it's not so there was a a, a tremendous uh, uh ESPN 30 for 30 short on uh Wilt's uh, uh interesting summer, shall we say, in the Catskills uh during high school and um I, I guess I'm wondering uh, uh maybe a little bit of sort of that little chapter in his life with uh sort of in the context of him playing in Philly uh, and ultimately going to Kansas to play um, uh, the next level in, at the collegiate game, uh, it, it feels to me sort of a, a surprising story or element of his of his background. But uh, maybe you could sort of put sort of that in context because that maybe gives a bit of a hint more of beyond just his playing prowess, what his life was like in his high school and collegiate years. Will was never like anybody else when at age five or seven he shot up and was a foot taller than his classmates in elementary school and then junior high. He led Overbrook to three championships and was the most famous high school player in the world. And and when he decided to go to Kansas, and I'll get back to the Cutchers in a second, Life magazine, then the most famous and prominent magazine in the country, ran a five-page spread on the college that Will chose to go to. It, later on, people like LeBron and Kevin Garnett went directly into the pros from high school, and Will was certainly good enough. He was the best player in the world when he was probably a senior in high school. Anyway, to get to your point about Cutchers, Eddie Gottlieb, called Mr. Basketball, owned the Philadelphia Warriors, and there was something called the Territorial Draft where 
a player who played in a high school or college in a certain geographical area could be drafted by that team, i.e., the Boston Celtics drafted Tom Heinsohn and Bob Cousy out of college. Eddie Gottlieb knew when Wilt was a high school senior that he wanted to draft and would draft Wilt. Eddie Gottlieb arranged for Wilt to become a busboy to earn money. Wilt was always ambitious, always a worker. When he was five or six years old, he helped an ice man. He helped a guy deliver milk in the days in Philadelphia when milk was delivered by a milkman on a horse up and down the streets. And Wilt's mother finally told the milkman that his son looked much older than he was, but he was only five or six years old, and she'd rather he didn't work at that time. He always wanted to earn money. So this was an opportunity for Wilt to have a summer job, to buy money, to earn money with which he would buy cars. Wilt loved cars. He loved horses. He loved polo horses. He loved racing horses. He owned harness racing. So he worked at Cutcher's Resort, a famous resort in the uh, Borscht Belt, Borscht being a Jewish, uh, Russian Jewish uh, soup. A lot of the resorts were in the Catskill Mountains. New Yorkers and other people would go there for vacation. Women would go up with their kids and their husbands would come up on the weekends. And there were a lot of great college players who were busboys at the Cutcher Cutcher's Resort and others in the Catskills. All these places are gone, long gone. Will always wanted to be the best at whatever he did. So he wanted to be and probably was the greatest busboy in their famous pictures that probably showed in that documentary. So I'm sorry, so, were- so Robert, he, he wasn't the only sort of basketball type up there, huh? I, I thought it was just a completely unique thing. For him, oh, no, I'm, sure, I'm sure he cut uh, a quite a uh, a figure, shall we say, in, in the in the uh, the summertime uh, 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 fun up there, huh? On the contrary, there were other college players who were busboys and waiters at resorts in the Catskills, and they played against one another. And I have it in the book. I forget his name. Uh, Wilt destroyed in an intra resort basketball game, a reigning uh, or an ex-All-American then playing for an industrial team. And Red Auerbach, the incomparable Boston Celtics coach, worked at, I believe, Cutcher's and is an athletic director or whatever, organizing sports. And uh, Red Auerbach recognized Wilt's incomparable talent. So, uh, and equally important, and again, this is the other side, to me, very interesting sides of Will. He became close friends with the Kutcher family and returned 50 years later to uh, visit with Milton Kutcher and his wife. And I went to the Kutchers and spent a couple of days there and interviewed. Will was friendly with the Kutcher children. It was an intimate part of his life, a special relationship. Milton Kutcher was like a second father to Will. And again, he he loved. He there's a great story. Someone told there was a a car had a flat tire or something. Wilt lifted it. One of the employees from the Warriors, and the guy was afraid that Wilt was going to have a hernia. Said, "Wilt, don't do that again." 
it's in the book. I don't remember. It's 100,000 words, and I wrote it many years ago, so I don't remember chapter and verse, every line in, in the in the book, as I did when I wrote it and uh, soon after it was published. So the Kutcher experience was great for Wilt. He developed a close relationship with the Kutcher family. He played against top-level collegiate players and uh, earned money with which I think he bought an Oldsmobile. He loved cars. Uh, and, and that speaks to the uh, um, uh, the meticulousness of, of this biography, the fact he can't remember every single word of it, uh, which is, uh, frankly, uh, uh, absolutely uh, forgivable. Um, but I got to think, though, that, that exposure up there uh, in the Catskills – uh, amongst some other players and, and, and all of that, besides his uh, hard work ethic and and, and, um, and all that, uh, probably, uh, you hinted at Red Arbuck, I got to think that there were other people in the, shall we say, basketball or budding basketball establishment, right? Which, you know, for, for you know, uh, for uh, to, to set all this up, right? The reality is that the pro game, quote unquote, was still largely a Midwestern and Northeastern kind of dominated thing, right? Even it was still sort of developing itself. Um, I, I got to think that that there were multiple entreaties to try to get Will to uh, play college uh, somewhat locally or in these regions. Um, I agree. And Kansas was absolutely not that, ultimately, right? Well, let, I address that in, in the book, the, the, your question about why Will went to Kansas. This was before the days when John Wooden and UCLA dominated for the decade, decade and a half that they did. Wilt didn't want to go down south because of segregation and the racial climate. He wanted to, Wilt was an adventurous person. He wanted to leave Philadelphia for new experiences. Fog Allen, <coughs> excuse me, was the Kansas coach. Fog Allen was one of the greatest coaches in collegiate history. James Naismith, who invented the game of basketball in a YMCA, it was buried in Lawrence, Kansas, where the university where Kansas is located. So Will traveled to many schools, and uh, to be honest, he was offered money covertly or, or under or otherwise. I guess covertly means otherwise. He had inducements to to attend. They wanted a, They offered his high school coach Cecil Motionson a job if they could, if he could bring Will along. Etc. Etc. And for all these reasons, he narrowed the choices down to a couple of Midwestern schools. And because of the great Fog Allen and the great tradition of Kansas uh, basketball, at one point, it's interesting. I didn't put. Yes, I did put in the book. I was prepping a little for this interview. Will he loved stats? He had a great memory. Loved numbers. Will pointed out to somebody. This is as of, I don't know when it was, 1970, 1985, that Kansas graduates, there were more Kansas graduates in the Naismith Hall of Fame than any other school. Live and learn. I, I knew that fact. I probably forgot it over the, the 17 years since my book was published. Kansas had a great tradition. Fog Allen coached our Olympic team. Ironically and sadly, because of an age requirement, Fog Allen never coached Wilt at Kansas, and that's the primary reason why Wilt went to Kansas. All right, so w explain to me then why, uh, and this sort of is another sort of, again, we're trying to go into some of the lesser-known sort of parts of the story, right? Why the Harlem Globetrotters af after Kansas 
versus going directly to the NBA. I'm, I'm ignorant of that story uh, and why and, and some of the uh, uh, scenarios and situations around that, because it would obviously be, I mean, you, you mentioned before Eddie Gottlieb, but I, I can't imagine that he wasn't already trying to figure out, I mean, the fact that he was helping him get a, a job at, during the summers at high school, uh, uh, you know, uh, that he didn't have designs to, for example, to bring him back to Philadelphia to play locally for what was now becoming a much more um, professional Philadelphia Warriors thing that, that Gottlieb was getting involved with. Why the Globetrotters after Kansas? I'm happy to answers the question. And it's, there's so much to Wilt's life. I'll try. I hope your listeners and that my questions are as concise as my answers are concise. No, this is great. I, we, this, again, this, uh, with all due respect, if, if, if people aren't more intrigued by this and we're going to give you some more stuff uh, again, this is the, this is the, it's a, it's a tremendous story. We, we can't do the entire life of him, uh, the justice, but I, I do want to unearth some of this stuff because it's, it's really great stuff. It's fascinating to me. Gottlieb invoked the territorial draft law rule since uh, rescinded in basketball, NBA history, and he drafted Wilt when he was in high school. He had the rights to Wilt. There was no pro team in Kansas City. That's why, so Wilt, that was another reason he went to uh, there. If he had gone to school in Boston, Red Auerbach could have invoked, I believe he would have had priority where a person played college. I'm not sure of that point, but it's a moot point because Wilt played in Philadelphia. Eddie Gottlieb owned the Warriors who were based in Philadelphia. He drafted Wilt. In those years, the NBA rule was a player could not enter the NBA until his college class graduated. Wilt played three years attended Kansas for three years. Freshman couldn't play varsity in those years. He was a freshman. He played his sophomore and junior year and was dissatisfied with the the basketball experience. Teams were just holding the ball and beating the hell out of Will. He, at one point, he, he said, I'm black and blue all over. I started out black. So Will's option was... I don't want to attend Kansas. I can't enter any longer, though he loved the Kansas experience. I want to earn money for my family. His parents were lower middle class, stable families, key to Wilt's stability and the general good nature, a stable uh, lower middle class black family. Wilt's option was the Globetrotters, which he loved. In those years before the NBA was dominated by blacks, the greatest black players, blacks were not drafted, were not allowed. It was an unwritten law. Teams were not drafting blacks in the 40s and the 50s. The great black players played for the Globetrotters. Wilt as a kid and his high school buddies loved the Globetrotters. So it all came together. And so, additionally, Abe Saperstein, the owner of the Harlem Globetrotters, had a part, small percentage of the Philadelphia Warriors because he and Eddie Gottlieb were buddies. So Wilt signs for a tremendous amount, I think was it 85,000 or 100,000 big signings in all the newspapers to play for the Globetrotters. And he, he toured Europe with them. He loved Europe. He learned European architecture and food and European women. It was a, it, the Globetrotters were 
the most favorite basketball experience of Will Chamberlain's life. And this is something I didn't know, and I guarantee you 99% of the people listening to this or 97% of the basketball fans in the United States over a certain age, Will Chamberlain would play an NBA season, and then after the season, he would meet up with the Globies in Europe and tour with them for a couple of months. It was a significant part of his life experience. He loved it. And on the Globe, one more point, there are a million points one could make. On the Globe Trotters, one of the stars was Meadowlark Lemon, who played the center, and the, their, their rev, reps revolved around the center, and the guard would cut off, and Meadowlark Lemon would throw a behind the back pass to the cutting guard, and in Wilt's case, he would jam the ball. Wilt played guard on the Globe Trotters for a year, and it improved his ball handling skills. So that's why Wilt joined the Harlem Globetrotters. That's very so, a completely unknown fact to me. So, was his so this basically was a his fulfilling his senior year, so to speak. He of eligibility, he couldn't go to the NBA. So this was a perfect way, and obviously his skills at, at a superior level, to essentially start playing professionally before he was allowed to play in the NBA. Correct. It improved his boss, ball skill, introduced him to Europe, which thereafter he loved to visit. And uh, he made a lot of money. He's the highest paid, one of the highest paid athletes in the world at that point. How, uh, how uh, uh, ironclad was, uh, or assumed, was uh, his uh, segue to the Warriors of the NBA? Was it effectively a done deal? Uh, like, how does that get officialized? Or did he have to go through some, I don't know, quote-unquote process to be officially drafted and brought into Philadelphia? It's a done deal since uh, Wilt was a high school senior, and, and Eddie Gottlieb invoked the territorial draft. I want to add a little bit. of Eddie Gottlieb was called Mr. Basketball, and as the great Harry Litwack, Temple's Hall of Fame coach back in the 50s and 60s said, Eddie Gottlieb was about as important to the game of basketball as the basketball. And that's a true statement. So it, it, it all came together that, that Wilt's mentor, Eddie Gottlieb, the owner of the Warriors, was a very influential player, a coach, uh, an owner, and he invoked the rule, and that's that. That's why Wilt came to the Warriors. There were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Just as Bob Cousy and uh, Tommy Heinsohn were drafted by the Celtics, and they came to the Celtics after graduating from New England uh, colleges. Now, was there ever a thought that he might not want to ultimately go to the Warriors after having been claimed so early in his um, budding career, or was it just like he just knew he was going? Yeah, he knew and accepted it and wanted to. Philly was a great basketball city. Eventually, he became too big, I would say, for Philadelphia for lots of reasons, which we could get into. Uh, He preferred New York and Los Angeles, not least because in those years, I'm talking about the early 60s, it was more acceptable for a black man to date a non-black woman, an Asian or a white woman. And Wilt liked all colors, but he tended to date uh, Asian or white women. And and New York, not just because he could date a, a non-black woman, New York, were there were exciting places, New York and Los Angeles. Philly's a great city. I love it. I'm born and bred here and live 
now in suburban Philly, but they don't compare to in a certain, when you're a young man to the glamouring glories and extracurricular activities from nightclubs to restaurants to dance etc to New York or Los Angeles or they don't have the weather of California yeah so but we'll, come on. you can't you, can you get a decent cheesesteak or a hoagie frankly in those places no not really Philadelphia it's just the the the, the the locus for all those things. All right, so explain to me then, and for our, for our audience a bit, <clears throat> what this uh, Philadelphia version of the Warriors was uh, upon uh, Wilt's arrival. We're talking basically the latter, very last part of the 50s and, and uh, early to mid-1960s before they made that move to San Francisco. Uh, obviously, Gottlieb is part of that story too, but, but maybe you can kind of give us a little sense of uh, the team, Wilt, uh, and uh, and Eddie as they uh, try to make a go of it in Philadelphia and and maybe how and why they ultimately went to San Francisco during that period of time. The Warriors had a distinguished pedigree, beginning with the Eddie Gottlieb's teams even before there was an NBA. There were more scoring champions produced by the Warriors than any other club. They were a very good club. Uh, and this is one of the points that I'm proud of in my book, maybe the most, uh, one of the most important points I make for the reader when people say, why wasn't Wilt more successful? Bill Russell, to just take a name out of a hat, that's a joke. Of course, Russell and Wilt are linked with the greatest, or one of the greatest, if not the greatest rivalry in sports. Russell had the benefit of the stability of one coach, Red Auerbach, Throughout Wilt's career, he played for different coaches, some not very strong personalities, weak characters, some strong characters like Alex Hahnemann, Frank McGuire, and Bill Sharman. And when he had a strong coach, he responded. Wilt was a, could be ornery and knew he was the greatest or thought he was the greatest player in the game, in the game's history. So when Wilt was in, the Warriors were a good team, but they were not as good as the Boston Celtics. So Wilt started in the 1959-60 and 60 season, and he had an amazing year. He was the first player ever to be the MVP and the Rookie of the Year. Only when Wes Unsel of the Baltimore Bullets holds that distinction. Wilt smashed every record there was his first season, yet the Warriors lost to Boston. In 5960, 60-61, 61-62, and uh, I don't know if you want me to address it right now why they lost to the Celtics or if I if I answered your question about the team. It was a very good team. Paul Arizon was a great player. Now, let me make another uh, equally interesting and important point about the team and, and the history of the NBA. The Philadelphia team in 1959 had the following people on it. Tom Gola, Guy Rogers, Ernie Beck, Paul Arizon, and Will Chamberlain. This is a unique story in professional sports. All five of those men were born in the same city, went to colleges in the city, Philadelphia, except Will, who went to Kansas, and ended up playing on the professional team of that city. 
It's an amazing fact, and I, I, I love to repeat it. Tom Gola was fabulous at Collegian at LaSalle. Ernie Beck set all kinds of records at Penn. He wasn't a great NBA player, a good NBA player. Guy Rogers went to Temple, was a great player. Paul Arison went to Villanova. So it's a really unique, amazing uh, situation that five guys grow up in a city, high school in the city, college, but for Will, and play on the professional team. Yeah, I mean it's fascinating, and um, look, also we're over we're overlooking a, a, a sort of a major event, right? As as Chamberlain, by the way, I mean he he was leading the team uh, in in scoring, uh, which is I guess obvious obvious, right? But uh, it's interesting. You look at the at the years, his first number of years with the with the Warriors. I mean, he literally he increased his points per game as the seasons went on. I mean, by the time they got to San Francisco, I mean he was scoring you know twenty three, twenty five points uh, per game on average. Um, but obviously nothing eclipsed that uh, magical moment uh, in 62 when I, what, what, I guess it was a home game they were playing in Hershey when he busted Let the record. Let me explain that. In those years, the NBA in the 1950s was a struggling league, nowhere as successful, meaning generating money like it does today or the last 20 or 30 years, like the NFL or Major League Baseball. There's a great, I like the line, some wag said the NBA in 1956, 57, 59, were eight guys in a phone booth smoking cigars, <laughs> meaning in some sense Bush League and primitive compared to what it had become, uh, would become. They played, quote, home games in other geographical areas in the state. That's how Wilt and the Warriors ended up playing in Hershey, Pennsylvania in, in March of 1962. And that, of course, is the venue for the single most famous game in basketball history and one of the great individual accomplishments in sports when Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in Hershey, Pennsylvania, not in Philadelphia. Yeah, so I guess, and, and as we sort of segue, because I want to get into the story of, of why going to San Francisco and then uh, his uh, desire or, or perhaps why he didn't stick around in, in San Francisco. Um, the uh, I guess the criticism, right? I mean, if you can even call it that, right? Here's a guy who is, um, you know, just simply otherworldly when it comes to lighting up the scoreboard. And, I, you know, the cynic would say, okay, well, here's a guy scoring 100 points and Averaging, you know, 40 points on, on certain stretches per game and, and a year season, you know, 25, almost 30 points a game. Um, sounds like a ball hog to me. Uh, never won the sort of championship with them. You know, was he a sort of centric and or egotistical kind of player? Or was it just simply that he, his was the cog that sort of made that team kind of work? And, and, and a lot of it was feeding him and making him sort of the, the central part of that? Or what, what was the dynamic, I guess, of that? Well, I, I'm just... Uh, yes. Yeah, because you, you don't see a whole lot of... The, well, I, maybe we're ebbing more towards that again in, in this modern era lately, but um, I'm just curious as to why he arguably was so successful. Obviously, his talent was unmatched, but... Please to address it. Number one, he was egocentric, and so was Babe Ruth and Bobby Orr and LeBron James 
and Bobby Bonds, et cetera, et cetera. Great athletes, great ice skaters, great pole vaulters, great boxers, Muhammad Ali, Joe Lewis, et cetera, et cetera, are egocentric. The question is, was Wilt a team player? And the answer is absolutely he was a team player. So why did he score so many points? Because the coach and owner told him to. He needed to for his team to be competitive. That's the crux of the issue for why Will Chamberlain and the teams on which he played, first the Warriors, then in San Francisco, and then ultimately with the Lakers, lost so many times to Bill Russell and Red Auerbach and the Boston Celtics. And my answer in the book, I devote a lot of pages to it, is there are nine reasons why. The nine reasons are that Red Auerbach... Bill Russell played with eight other Hall of Famers, great players who, who, who are in the Hall of Fame, and their coach, Red Auerbach, who's in the Hall of Fame. Will had to score 25 or 30% of the team's points for them to be competitive. If he didn't, they would have lost by even more than the totals that they lost to Boston in those years. Boston had a great balanced team. That's what teams are, the great Yankee teams, the great Dodger teams of the 50s and 60s, my era when I was a teenager, always have great offense and defense. The Celtics had great defense, starting with Russell, Tom Sanders, one of the league's great defensive players, Casey Jones, who replaced Cousy and Heinsohn when they retired, great defensive player, great six-man coming off the bench, John Havlicek, before he became a starter. They were a balanced team, guys. The great 1961-62 Celtics had five or six men, it's in the book, who averaged double figures. Wilt didn't have the supporting cast that Boston did. And there's a great quote in one of my favorite interviews was Leonard Coppett, a distinguished sports writer in New York, author of 16 books, who made the point you win as a team, you lose as a team. No one, not, and I'm quoting Coppett here, not Babe Ruth, not Michael Jordan, not Bill Russell, wins alone. They need a strong supporting cast. Michael Jordan's first years, they didn't win the NBA title. He didn't have a great supporting cast. He didn't have a Scottie Pippen and other players, Steve Kerr and other great good guards they had. So that's why Boston prevailed over Will seems also Boston had Red Auerbach, arguably the greatest coach in NBA history. Will had different coaches, and it's not the same stability. And some of the coaches, frankly, were mediocre. They admitted they were not great coaches, and they lasted a year or two. So that's a whole mouthful on to answer your question. Wilt was a team player, and the proof of that is when he went to the Lakers in their great run, the streak, the longest professional winning streak in North American sports history, he did, his role was diminished. He could play just defense and rebound and score you know, like 12 points or whatever, 14 points a game, and make the outlet pass to Jerry West and... Uh, Gail Goodrich. When Wilt had a strong supporting team in the Sixers in 1966-67 and the Lakers in 71-72, he played on two of the greatest teams of that era and the greatest teams ever. Of course, the games changed a lot, and that's a whole other subject. Well, sure, and I, and I would say a lot of a lot of people would say the 63-64 season losing the finals, arguably 
you know, he was basically – you're intimating he, – he carried that team, right? I mean, he was basically the reason why they sort of went as far – I wouldn't say overachieved, but, um, you know, without that, they wouldn't have even sort of been a finalist. And you're mentioning some of the reasons as to why and they never go for the hump there. I, a further point on it, it's not just Robert Cherry mouthing Wolf saying why Boston prevailed. I love Boston. People say they don't know it from reading the book. I was a Boston Celtic fan. I wanted Wilt and the Philly teams to do well, but I loved the team basketball that they played. Uh, I was going to make an important... Oh, yeah. Many sports writers and referees, I quote them in the book, make that point about that Wilt's team were not as good as the Celtics. And lastly, and most importantly, I read... I think it was somewhere between three and 4,000 newspaper articles in researching the book. Wilt's teams were not favored to win, to beat Boston in all those series, except in 66, 67, 68, 69, where they lost it and blew it. And I criticized the team, the coach, and Wilt for that year. And then the Laker team. So for the 14 years of his career, there were only two or three teams that were strong and favored to win the NBA title. And two of the three times they won the title. This is from reading the Philly, the New York, Los Angeles, and Boston papers, especially the Philly papers. They were not shocked that the Celtics would prevail. All right. I, I want to uh, uh, fast forward uh, in a minute to get to L.A. because that's where a lot of this other sort of uh, uh, uh uh, unknown sort of a forgotten league stuff sort of really comes into play. But uh, one just quick question, um, when the Warriors started to hit on some financial uh, issues and, and were looking to uh, uh, get rid of some players uh, uh, and they sold Wilt, um, uh, why Philadelphia? I mean, did he want to go back to Philadelphia now that this 76ers franchise was coming into play? Or was it just uh, irony that he was going uh, being traded to Philadelphia and back, quote unquote, home? No, it wasn't irony. Ike Richmond and Irv Kozlov had bought the Syracuse National franchise and brought pro basketball back to one of the premier and original NBA cities in Philadelphia. And he was Wilt's lawyer. There's a certain conflict of interest there. He was Wilt's lawyer and he was Wilt's uh, employer when Wilt came back to Philly. That's why Wilt, Wilt didn't want to come back to Philly from San Francisco. And Ike Richmond talked a minute, and it, indeed that's a whole other subject. When he was in Philly for a few of those years with the Philadelphia 76ers, he lived in New York and commuted to Philly, which is a half-assed situation and should never have been allowed to happen. But they were the terms that Wilt demanded. Eventually, he saw the light, and, and for the 66-67 season, rented an apartment in Center City. But the earlier years... He commuted from New York during the, this famous 100-point game and 50, uh, averaging 50.4 games a year in 1961-62. Will Chamberlain lived in New York and took the train or drove from New York to Philly. Interesting. So so Cosmopolitan was uh, certainly creeping into uh, the lexicon of Wilt, right? So it, And maybe that is a little bit of – that's to me, that's uh, kind of a bit of a revelation because it does maybe get into the psyche a bit of – of this guy, especially when he gets to L.A., right, which is sort of, uh, you know, uh, another sort of flavor of, of sort of cosmopolitanness, because the Lakers, of course, that's when, you know, really we were talking about when um, uh, the sort of first sort of real dominant uh, uh, 
uh, star-studded uh, uh, era uh, sort of came about. I, the, I, I'm just wondering if this is the beginnings of sort of or true evidence, right? I, it feels to me like he's got a lot of interests outside of the game of basketball uh, proper, right? Um, and it seems maybe that's partially driving why he's commuting from New York and maybe ultimately winding up in L.A.? Years. No, it wasn't the. It, yes, he had interest. He owned a nightclub in Harlem. Uh, what was it? Wilts uh, Small's Paradise, a famous club that went back to the I think forties. A, a black club, the whites hung out there. Uh, it was he, he had he always had interest out outside of basketball. He got involved in harness racing, and in fact, the owner of this one of the owners of the San Francisco Warriors and Wilt uh, had uh, owned a, a harness racehorse, a great racehorse. There was only one problem. There was an even greater racehorse uh, at that time. But Wilt just loved the vibe of New York as uh, zillions of other people have loved it over the years. The, the, you know, the, the vibe, the sparkle, the pizzazz, the nightlife, the excitement, the restaurants, the everything, as I said earlier. Uh, and same in L.A. He loved being, loved the climate. He got into volleyball beach volleyball, uh, rehabbing a torn tendon in his knee. And he loved that in his post-basketball career. That's how he spent his time on the beach at Santa Monica, playing cards and jiving with people and bantering. He was a very social person, and uh, he loved the volleyball life. All right, so let's let's get into that. You opened the door very nicely to that, and I appreciate that. So, um, I, we, so we're fast-forwarding now to... Uh, sort of the the latter years of the NBA career, this being in Los Angeles, obviously a championship season in in, in the midst of that, 71-72, the Jerry Buss era getting underway and, and the fabulous, all kinds of you know uh, great stuff. And we've had a bunch of conversations with some of the folks involved uh, with the fabulous forum at the time. But I, I'm really, this is also some of the seeds of, of uh, you know, Wilt's playing career kind of nearing its end, uh, maybe – a little bit of maybe against his will or perhaps some of injuries and all that kind of stuff. But some other things you're sort of hinting at sort of coming into into the picture. Um, let, let's before we get into the volleyball thing, because that that in of itself is fascinating. Tell me about sort of the um, the I guess the end of the Lakers sort of situation and uh, this in uh, dalliance, I guess, with the ABA, which obviously was still quite fledgling uh, in the early 70s. Um, uh, it feels to me like uh, this was uh, essentially a bit of a something new to try, maybe then just simply coming back and trying to help the Lakers win yet another you know, championship. Uh, part of it was that, uh, that, that filthy word money. The San Diego conquistadors, conquistadors, we'll shorten it to the Qs. The Qs, people. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they they offered him a boatload of money to become a player coach, and Wilt was all for it. There was one problem. There was the option clause in basketball, which has since been removed. The option clause gave a team the option to, for one year after a player's contract was up. So Wilt had run his, through his contract with the Lakers, and he said, I want to go be a player coach in San Diego. They're going to pay me a bundle of money. I want a new experience. 
And the Lakers, through their lawyer and their owner, said, wait a second, Wilt, you can't. If you play basketball next year, it has to be for the Los Angeles Lakers. After one more year, then you're a free man. Now, this was a ridiculous law since rescinded rule, but that's the way it was. So Wilt just became the coach of the the Qs. He was not a player. Did, did he know? So, and we've had um, uh, a lot of conversations around the ABA. We had Dennis Murphy on a couple of episodes talking about all of that, and and the, you can already, you can hear and and smell, if you will, the uh, the questionable finances sort of in the background of what you just said, um, possibly. Uh, but but how much did Wilt sort of know? I mean, and or frankly, the Conquistadors' ownership uh, know uh, or or let on. About this situation, right? Because I, I can't imagine he would have been that completely in the dark to make this sort of move and agreement without kind of knowing that this reserve thing or this option thing was going to kind of bite him in the butt. Or, or so, how, how much of I guess would you say he knew that this situation would get thorny or or didn't? I don't know. And when I don't know something, I acknowledge it. I, I don't know the answer to your question. All I know is that it ended up. Maybe he thought I'm Will Chamberlain, a higher expensive lawyer, and I'll I'll beat it or or, or whatever. But uh, the the courts upheld the option clause, and that was that. Wilt was the player coach, 1973-74. Yeah, and I got I got to think that you know the ownership group, right? Uh, you know, this is a guy coming off another NBA Finals, right? This is another a guy coming off of. Uh, Leading and the league in scoring, right, again, uh, you know, a uh, field goal percentage. I mean, I, you know, this is this guy was uh, certainly, you know, uh, trailing off from his maybe his peak, but he still was absolutely very vital and a, a catch, so to speak. I agree. But the owner, I think it was a dentist who hit, who hit a jackpot someplace. It was just a shaky financial league, as you know, and eventually folded and four of the teams were enveloped, incorporated into the NBA New York Nets, Denver Nuggets, I forget the other two. And there's some great players in the NBA. Dr. J, George Irving, the Iceman, Connie Hawkins. Uh, the Conquistadors, if I may, Wilt being Wilt, again, I criticize him for this. He commuted by helicopter and small plane from Los Angeles to San Diego. He did, and I understand you don't want to drive in the – I've done that trip. It's three hours when there's normal traffic. It could be four or five hours. Yeah, it looks, Wilt, it looks, it looks easy on the map until you get on, on the freeway. And on the freeway. And Will had Stan Olbeck, a, a respected basketball man. Yeah, let's talk, let's talk about that because it's it almost like he almost kind of just ceded the operations in many respects to Olbeck, no? Yeah, he did. Stan did all the X's and O's. But Will is no dummy, and as Alex Hannum, one of the great NBA coaches, I don't know, these names will mean nothing to many young listeners, but take my word for it, Alex Hannum won, uh, was a great coach, won the title uh, with the uh, Sixers in 66-67 and took the San Francisco Warriors. One year they failed to, the only year of Wilt's career, they played on a losing team with a losing record their first year in San Francisco. And the next year, Alex Hannum took them to the Western Division title. My point. So Wilt flies in wearing expensive Italian-made loafers and expensive clothes. He loved to dress up. 
Stan Albrecht ran the team, ran the practices. But Wilt was a good basketball man, and even John Wooden learned something from Wilt. Coaches were always saying, I can handle that player. I learned how to handle so-and-so. And Wilt said, don't say that about a player. It makes them sound like it's a zoo, and you're a lion trainer handling someone. Wilt knew basketball. Alex Hannum said that he knew well. But he, he had a... <laughs> He had so many other interests, and Wilt would fly in, um, and there'd be a beautiful actress at the practice. Let me tell you a great anecdote, one of my many, many favorites about Wilt in, uh, in the book. He's coaching. He comes to practice, and the basketball gets caught in the guide wire, and the players are trying to jump up and knock it out, and they're ready to get a chair and stand on it. These are, you know, six foot six, six foot eleven. Caldwell Jones, a real jumping jack. He couldn't get the ball down. Wilt gets there and mumbles. He said, why don't you knock the ball down? He said, Wilt, we tried. We can't knock the ball out of the guide wire. Wilt starts bitching and muttering to himself. Or something. Put the money on the floor, and I'll, make, I'll collect it. He takes his shoes off and his bare feet. He jumps up and knocks the ball loose, and all the players' jaws drop. <laughs> well, I love. Like I said I love more than anything. I love collect uh, hearing and then recounting in the book the ex- examples of Wilt's almost superhuman strength and stamina. And I urge your uh, listeners go to YouTube. There weren't YouTube videos in abundance when I wrote the book. There's some amazing videos of Wilt showing his strength and players bouncing off of him and Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mr. Universe, saying Wilt was the strongest man I ever knew and he picked me up with one hand and threw me, etc. Well, you, you say in the book, uh, you quote uh, uh, Stan Albeck as saying that essentially he, he sort of came across as being uh, indifferent uh, to bored even uh, with sort of the X's and O's and and I guess there was even this autobiography that was out of, of his that he was uh, that Allback seems to recall that he seemed to be a little bit more interested in, in promoting versus uh, you know where the team was going to be playing next and 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 matching up against the next uh, the next competitor. Yeah, all that's true. I mean, Wilt, though the players had nice memories of Wilt, and he chewed them out when appropriate, and he was no. Uh, he didn't roll over for a player, but he wasn't. His heart wasn't into it, and he, oh, that's why he only did it for one year. Why? Um, and, and I know that the cues uh, just they they did knock it out in terms of, of attendance and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, there were a lot of floundering franchises in and around that. Why did Wilt hang it up after that? Uh, you would think that maybe he would still want to figure out a way to play because his now year in purgatory was essentially up, and and and. Maybe the coaching thing could have been a more of a full time thing if he now that he knew. I'm just curious as why he didn't continue to maybe pick up uh, playing again. He was tired of basketball. He had so many other interests in life, and he had you know taken a beating. People beat the hell out of Wilton. Coach uh, refs didn't call fouls all the time like they you know they, they Wilt was so more so much more dominant than other players. He was tired of basketball. He had hurt his knee. He had his teeth smashed in by Clyde Lavelle many years before. He's run up the court. He didn't have the lateral movement that he had before he got older and he tore his patella tendon. And that's an interesting point about, uh, for me it was interesting, about Jabbar and, and Wilt. I think Jabbar is the second greatest big man. And they competed against each other. Jabbar's 10 years younger than Wilt. And I contend, and same with Shaq, the other can. 
contender for the who could who was greater than Wilt. Uh, Wilt could out jump Jabbar and Shaq. He had much more stamina than both of them. He was much greater on defense than both of them. No disrespect. I mean, Jabbar was unbelievable and had a better temperament in many respects than Wilt. It was even more of a team player and less of a troublemaker. Uh, so, to answer your question, Summers, he was tired of it. He played since he was a kid. He, re- he had many other things he wanted to do with his life, in which, and he did it. Yeah, and, and clearly he had a lot of just uh, all kinds of other things going on uh, near the tail end of, of his his playing and or semi-coaching uh, career. Uh, yeah, and being in L.A., right? So the entertainment industry and, and doing commercials for various, uh, you know, uh, advertisers and all kinds of stuff, right? All wide bodies start out roomy. Then, on most airlines, that space fills up. But on TWA, it's different. TWA has a separate business class that's spacious and comfortable. And it's on every wide body flight. TWA's ambassador class has bigger, wider seats and fewer of them with room for longer legs and wider bodies. Couldn't have said it better myself. You're gonna like us, TWA. Why schlep to Boston or Philly or New York in the middle of the winter when you could be on the beach in Santa Monica or you could be in Hawaii next to L.A., the volleyball uh, mecca, and all these beautiful women? And, you know, there were talk about Wilt coming back to play for the Knicks and the Cleveland Cavaliers. And as I say in the book, no disrespect to Cleveland, but Wilt would much prefer being in a warm climate than being in Cleveland in wintertime. All right. Well, let, let's uh, let's let's talk about sort of that sort of last uh, major sort of pro sports uh, exploit of his, because uh, we hinted at it before. Uh, volleyball was uh, arguably um, a therapeutic exercise for him, literally and figuratively, and a recreational thing at that. And I, I'm guessing that sort of really kind of came into uh, its own when he was playing for the Lakers. But it, it really took on a whole new uh, set of circumstances in life once the uh, Conquistadors thing was over, or maybe sort of uh, in conjunction with it. In conjunction, correct. He grew to love volleyball to the point where he played with a professional team and they toured the country. And as the great Gene Selznick, one of the great players of that era, said, wilted more for volleyball than anybody else in the 50 years that Selznick was associated with the sport. People loved to come out and watch Wilt play, and he would banner and smile. He was more relaxed. No one was criticizing him for not winning the title, for not scoring 90 points. And he started, as I said earlier, rehabbing his knee when he tore the tendon. And then he uh, loved the game. And Wilt promoted the game. He uh, promoted a girl scene. I'll read to you a great uh, quote I found. I was looking this, mor- this morning or yesterday. Uh, Kathy Gregory, an All-American volleyball player who teamed with Wilt in two-on-two tournaments, she recalled Wilt's incredible stamina and how he dove for shots. Quote, when he left the beach, half the beach left with him. If Wilt got in my car... It would take five weeks to get the sand out. End of quote. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, and and I he I, he certainly. Uh, it's hard not to make a presence wherever you go, anyway. Being of his size, stature, and star wattage, um, 
But I got I got to think that he made just every sort of pickup game in on the beaches of of Southern California. It just kind of a, a mini event, whether he liked it or not. Yes, it did. And I have friends. My college roommate was on the beach in California. He saw Wilt walking. So I've met a number of people over the years who relate a Wilt encounter. And it was in on the beach in California, which he loved. He was a hedonistic athlete. He loved the rhythm. When he was retired and didn't have to go to basketball practice, he'd sleep until 10 or 11. He didn't sleep much. You know, he had insomnia. He'd drive a station wagon. Sometimes his two Great Danes would be with him. And he'd go to the Santa Monica and another beach. I forget it. And I, I visited the beach in the three trips I took to L.A. to interview his basketball and volleyball buddies and his uh, his uh, executor of his will and dear friend Cy Goldberg, his lawyer. Will would hang out. They would play cards. He, was, he cheated at cards. Everybody knew it. He cheated in all games, but not in basketball. And that's an important point to make. And I, that's, I address that in the book. He would be there all day. Look, Wilt loved women, as lots of men love women, and there were scantily clad women there, great athletes. Wilt was attracted to athletic women who were in shape, took care of them, their body. They'd play basketball, and they'd hang out on the beach all day. Not a bad life. And then he went to Hawaii, owned a condo there. He played uh, beach volleyball. He played some basketball with one of the University of Hawaii basketball team. He got free. He was a very social animal. People liked him. There's a great quote from Dick Schaap, the renowned sports writer and commentator, who said, I, I, Russell's politics were closer to mine than Wilt's were, but Russell was just not a lovable person, and Wilt was a lovable giant. And that really does sum up. Wilt's persona, his personality. I interviewed all of these close friends and associates, and they could have, Wilt could be a pain in the ass and very demanding. They all had wonderful memories of Wilt, his generosity, his fun, his bass voice, his, his refusal to acknowledge when he was wrong on something. Uh, just nice memories. Nobody, they weren't criticizing him when they well could have. So getting back to volleyball, he toured with a professional team. He sponsored a woman's team. He put it on the map, and he's inducted into the Volleyball Hall of Fame, which I visited as part of my research in Holyoke, Mass. And there are very few athletes, maybe you know them, know the name, who are in two Hall of Fames. Well, of course, in basketball and 10 miles away in Holyoke, Mass, the volleyball. I don't know if Jim Brown is in the lacrosse Hall of Fame. He was one of the oh, greatest. Yeah, yeah, I think he is. Yeah, and then he would be in the two Hall of Fames. And I don't know if Bo Jackson, I don't think he's in. Uh, anyway. Uh, so yeah. uh, from what your research was able to, to uh, uncover, so we've had a couple of episodes uh, devoted to the International Volleyball Association, Jay Hanseth, a uh, great player, and uh, uh, Mike Jacobs, who did a, a wonderful uh, 30 for 30 on the IVA as well. Um, from what you can tell, like, do you have any sort of more understanding of how Wilt got more – uh, front and center involved with this International Volleyball Association. I mean, I think it's lost on a whole lot of people that you know, there was some some big names involved in getting this thing uh, started up. I mean, Barry Diller and Barry Gordy of Motown Records. And, um, you know, there was a whole sort of Southern California sort of um, uh, investor sort of base there that was um, intrigued with this idea of co-ed volleyball at a professional level. And I think 76, the, uh, the uh, Olympics, um, as a lot of sports tend to kind of uh, 
uh, sort of showcase is that maybe this there could be something here on the professional ranks. I I mean, it, there's no question that you know it's if I'm if I'm trying to tr- figure out a way uh, to professionalize um, uh, a, a a sport like this, right? And I know of one of the world's most famous athletes being uh, a, a crack. Uh, 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 volleyball player in his uh, spare time and how much he loves the game just innately. Um, it seems like a, a almost kismet to be able to sort of find this kind of person to maybe be the front man, if you will, for, for something fledgling like this. You know more about it than I, and it was interesting for me to hear you talk about it. I address it briefly in the book, but don't go into much detail. Isn't it? Is that the one that never took off? There was a, a, a volleyball association with which Wilt was associated. The the one I know more about and interviewed people was when he was touring with Gene Selznick and Keith Erickson, the great basketball player, and some other well-known Larry Rundle from that period. So I, I'm not the person to speak. On that yeah, D- David Walper was kind of the guy really behind the IVA. He was um, he was a, a prolific TV and film producer, and you know he was the guy behind Roots and the Thornbirds and, and Willy Wonka, the original movie, and all that stuff. And and I, I think he became smitten with the sport when he was, um, uh, I guess, doing some 1972 Olympics uh, uh, documentary uh, footage and stuff. But yeah, I mean, he was. Um, uh, you know, literally courted by uh, all those folks and and others. Um, and the, yeah, the desire was, and again, this was also around the same time, right, where uh, you had a ton of uh, uh, challenger leagues and, and fledgling uh, pro sports propositions, right? You know, people like uh, Gary Davidson and, and, um, uh, and uh, you know, the, the folks behind the ABA and the World Hockey Association and World Football. So, you know, why not, right? It's like now is the time. And um, uh, so, but it's interesting because there's some great pictures sort of floating around there of Wilt. Uh, and I guess it depends on who you ask. I mean, to, to your point earlier, we talked to people like Jay Hanseth, who was, you know, one of the star players of that league. Uh, and he, he almost uh, mimics what you just said. He's a great guy, gregarious, fun to be around, excellent athlete, one of the best players he's ever seen. Um, but, you know, this question, he, he, he was... Depending on the time you ask and the 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 the, the data that you sort of uh, sort of filter through, he was at once or at the same time the commissioner of this league, a co-owner of this league, a player in this league, a coach in this league, the ambassador for this league. Um, on some occasions, all of them. Um, and I guess it just for whatever reasons never really sort of fully stuck. But this was a guy. I mean, I think true to his nature, and I think in a lot of his basketball exploits too. He shows up, the spotlights come along with him. When he's not there, eh. Exactly. And uh, you've piqued my interest in learning more about it. You do a very nice job of uh, explaining his uh, role. For our listeners and for you, our episodes number 138 with Jan Han- uh, Jay Hanseth and uh, number nine, um, uh, we talked to um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the gentleman behind Bump and Spike, which is the 30 for 30 short. Um, I'll make an observation that I do write quote myself in the book from talking to the people with whom he played volleyball. 
He was a good volleyball player, not a great one. He didn't come to the game until his thir- 30s. And as I quote one of them saying, his hands were too big to set up the ball properly. Now, that's not to say his great athleticism. When we'll smash the ball, I wouldn't want to be near it or spiked it or stay, or defending a spike. So uh, his technique, and I don't fault it for that. Wilt was an amazing athlete, always doing something physical when besides volleyball, as he got older, playing racquetball, playing tennis, playing paddleball, playing polo. He owned a polo pony, running five or six miles a, a day. Uh, can I tell another Wilt story if we have time and yeah, anecdote? Uh, and and I, I guess we can sort of put it against the, uh, and we'll get you connected, by the way, with, with Mike Jacobs, who did the documentary, and Jay Hanseth, if you're interested for that. Uh, uh, well-anticipated uh, extra chapter, perhaps, uh, on that. Um, yeah, just maybe sort of put all of that sort of in context, I guess, to, to Wilt's, um, I wouldn't call it wandering eye, although I guess I could, right, because there is that sort of angle of his life for sure, wink, wink. But uh, uh, it's obviously, this is a guy who's, um, I would call it a short attention span, but um, he's got a lot of interests, right? Uh, I would I, I, Would you call him a renaissance man, or would you? I, I mean, I could. Leonardo da Vinci Renaissance man, or I, I just think he was a very interesting, talented, intelligent. He wasn't a genius. Well read. The last month of his life, he was learning to play the saxophone or the xylophone. One of them, I have it correct in the book. Uh, he was a neat guy. I mean, like all, all people, he had his strengths and weaknesses. He was he was larger than life. To pick a phrase out of nowhere. Of course, that's the name of my book, Wilt Larger Than Life, if I could plug it. Uh, I, it's just sad to me that uh, a couple of things, that Wilt didn't have children. All of his friends said he loved kids, and there's some neat pictures of Wilt with, with kids. You could The affection he had. And I think, like a lot of people, he would have been happy had he married, but... As Cy Goldberg, who knew him as well as anybody the last 30 years of his life, Cy Goldberg was his lawyer in L.A. and friend, buddy. They ate dinner, Cy with his wife and Wilt, with a date or alone many, many, many times. Cy said that Wilt's lifestyle didn't lend itself to marriage. And Wilt made the, of course, notorious statement of betting 20,000 women. And he also would reiterate that he also said it's better to make love to one woman a thousand times than a thousand women one time. And he was a big proponent of birth control. And to the best of my knowledge, when I wrote the book in Cy Goldberg's, there were no little illegitimate or legitimate Wilties running around. Though somebody, there's an article in Sports Illustrated claiming to be Wilt's son. That's a whole other issue. And I don't address that. All that happened after my book was published in 2004. But this anecdote I wanted to tell was uh, Will Stan Lorber is great. I loved interviewing him, one of my favorite. He was Will's doctor for many years and then just an advisor. And Will would visit Stan in Palm Beach, Florida, where Stan retired. Stan was the uh, 76er doctor. They were all friends, all connected. Ike Richmond, Eddie Gottlieb, Will, Stan Lorber. Anyway, Stan's wife, First wife dies, happily remarried, he's deceased. Wilt says, you're down in the dumps, your first wife is going, I want to take you to Italy, I'll pay for everything. They go to Italy, they're two great anecdotes I love. I, I don't know if you want to hear both, but this one, Wilt would run five or six miles 
a day. He did it. They're in a hotel. Wilt's drenched. He comes in, and he's famished. Not dehydrated, but he's thirsty. And he says to them, bring me some orange juice. And this is Italy. And they bring uh, this little four-ounce glass of orange juice, freshly squeezed, I'm sure. And Wilt looks at it, stunned, and he says, how many do you have? Bring me every glass you have. And they bring Wilt 144 ounces of orange juice, three dozen small four-ounce glasses, and Stan Lorber relates to me how Wilt just took them down one after another, not coming up for air. I, I love, to me, I love that anecdote. Well, I think it's, it's large. Too, I think it's funny, too, that they had to put it in all those small glasses. They couldn't put it in a large container. That's the that's the funnier part. And that, that's true, too. And, they, of course, the staff is watching, and their mouth, people's jaw drops open all the time with Wilt's exploits. And the other thing is that on that trip, Stan Lorber told me they went to uh, Florence and that Will, just like millions of others, including me, fell in love with the David statue. And Stan Lorber was thinking to himself that Will was probably saying, there's a guy built, if anybody was familiar with Michelangelo's, Michelangelo's David statue, there's a guy who's built as well as I am. <laughs> so he, he had a bit of a... Uh, uh... Uh, not only an ego, but probably also a winking uh, sense of humor, too. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And being will, being physical, was central to his being. There's no getting around it. And when he got older and one ailment after another hit, it was difficult for him to live with it. All right, last question. Uh, uh, in your opinion, do you, I mean, do you think he was essentially just because of his size um, destined to be a basketball player, or do you think he could have done other, um, I guess, top-tier, all-star, Hall of Fame, career-type uh, athletic exploits, either instead or as well. I mean, volleyball obviously was, you know, more of a more of a thing sort of later in his career. But I mean, I obviously basketball was part of his life just just because of who he physically was, whether he wanted to or not. Right? And it's obviously a gift. But do you think you think he could have done other things too, or instead uh, than yes. basketball? And I love your question. I thought about it even many years after I wrote the book. I think about the question. Wilt became a basketball player because that's where the money was in those days when he grew up in Philadelphia. Number one, even after his first season, and this wasn't idle talk or speculation on people or rumor, he talked about retiring. He said, I think I can be a world, and I quote him, I think I could break the world decathlon record. And Robert Cherry thinks that Wilt could have been a medalist in the decathlon in the 60 or 64 Olympics, provided that a pole vault, the technology, would have allowed someone who weighed 260, 270 to pole vault, that it wouldn't snap. Wilt loved track. It was his first and most enduring love, more than women, more than volleyball, more than basketball. He loved track. He, he, he sponsored a world, a girls, young women's track team in uh, San Diego. Wilt seriously considered uh, becoming fighting at Muhammad Ali, but his uh, accountant, Alan Levitt, whom I interviewed many times, talked him out of it as they were about to sign the contract. Imagine Wilt, he tried out with the Kansas City uh, What's the football team? Hank Stram. Imagine Wilson end with his reach and his grip, one hand catching a ball. 
So I think that in another life and later on, Wilt would have retired. This is just me speculating that I would have loved him to retire after five years and become a world famous and gold medal decathlete. Every pro team and college team, his players, fellow players talked to me about his stamina and strength. He was the fastest man in that famous basketball drill where you run up and down from one side of the court to the other. Will beat the guards. Al Adels told me that. He was a high jumper in high, high school. He won a high school meet at Kansas with very little practice. He, he would have learned to throw the shot put in the discus because of his strength and become world class. So, And the last thing and a major point to make about Will Chamberlain, I think that it's sad, personally I think this, that he didn't play an individual sport. He was an individual, a sport where he could have sh- shown not that he didn't in basketball, but he got all this soreness and grief for not winning every single game because he was Superman expected to do. He would have been a much more satisfied person if he played an individual sport. And he had the athletic ability, the strength and stamina and hand-eye coordination to excel in other avenues. All right, I told you that was going to be interesting, and there's uh, no doubt that the uh, the life and times of Will Chamberlain continue to fascinate, even in the years after his passing. Obviously, a legend on the hardwood, a uh, a, a, a tremendous player on the volleyball court, uh, a um, maybe even a legend in the bedroom for for all we all we know and remember of his of his life story. All of it and more is uh, encompassed in the uh, great uh, uh, authoritative uh, and definitive, according to the late Dick Schapp, book on the history and the story of Wilt Chamberlain, uh, written by our guest this week, Robert Cherry. It is called Wilt, Larger Than Life. It is published by Triumph Books. It is found, of course, wherever books, good books are found, uh, all those various places. But of course, if you'd like to give us a few uh, shekels of referral love, uh, to keep our lights on and uh, keep the heat or the air conditioning going, depending on the season here. Uh, we appreciate if you uh, decided to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com and just search up this episode with Robert Cherry and our conversation about Wilt. And uh, you'll find a convenient link that'll take you right to Amazon. It's probably the quickest way that you can get it, either in digital or hardcover or paperback form. Uh, and uh, we'll get a couple of coins to... Uh, put into our coffers and and pay some bills around here. We appreciate that very much. Uh, While you're on the website, goodseatstillavailable.com, by all means, make sure that you find our social media sites and follow us, will you? Uh, On Instagram, you'll find us at goodseatsstillavailable. On Facebook, you'll find us at goodseatsstillavailable. And on Twitter, you'll find us at goodseatsstill. You will also, on the website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, find... Uh, the convenient link to sign up to our weekly email newsletter. Just your name and your email address. It's all we need. We don't share with anybody. And uh, boom, you're on the list. Uh, what else? You will find uh, on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com uh, our email link. But you can also send it to us directly if you'd like. And we're at hello at goodseatstillavailable.com. Easy peasy. Uh, let's see. Our thanks, of course, this week to our uh, longtime pal, Jerry Payne, Payne, Jerry Payne. Yes, Jerry Payne, audio excellence. That's what I'm trying to say. 
Uh, we thank you, kind sir, for your twiddling of knobs, etc. this week. And uh, let's leave you now with a uh, just a sheer gift from the internet gods, shall we? I don't know who posted this, but oh my God, this is just perfect for a way to go out of this episode. Did you know amongst the zillions of things that Wilt Chamberlain was interested in and tried in his amateur and professional careers, plural, was singing and releasing a 45 RPM record? Well, whoever was the promotional genius and agent at the time in 1960, when Wilt was uh, just kind of starting to show his prowess with the Philadelphia Warriors, he released a song, two songs actually, it was a two-sided RPM 45, of course. The A side was a, was a tune called By the River, uh, which is fine and, you know, it's okay. It's it's a passable song, but we kind of like the B side and uh, it's there uh, on YouTube. You can find it. Uh, it's labeled as Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain. We know he hated the term the stilt, but, uh, you know, uh, who knows the the... the the, the things going on in terms of like why to, but whoever thought why this would be a good idea in the first place, because I, I'm not sure Wilt was the best singer, but you know what? He gave it the good old college try. And I think he probably did a good 95% better than anybody else could average singers out there. And here it is. It's called That's Easy to Say. That's the name of the tune. It's on End Records. And, um, Let's uh, send you out. Here's Wilt, the still Chamberlain, singing us out. Thanks for for listening, everybody. Take care. See you next week.